The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. A couple years ago, we discovered uh, a skunk living in some rocks in our backyard right next to our treehouse. And this is an area where my kids like to play quite a bit. And so, as a father, I, I had to do what I had to do. I, uh, I got out my animal trap, this have a heart. I strung up some bacon in the middle of it. Everybody loves bacon, skunks too. And I put it in the middle of the trap, and, and the next morning I had, I had my skunk. This is not an actual photo of the, of the skunk, but it, it was about that size. It was a very adult skunk. And I did some research because I didn't know what to do with this thing at this point. And I realized you have to be very careful about how you handle a skunk, obviously, but you have to approach it with a blanket. Because if it sees you, it will start spraying. And so I approached it like this, just with my eyes peeking over, and I covered the uh, trap, and I did the only thing I could do at that point. Uh, I took the cage over to our pond, and I submerged the cage underwater. And don't judge me. <laughs> I'm not proud of what I did. But I know some of you are thinking, like, how could you let that innocent skunk suffer? And I had to protect my children, right? Uh, it was either the skunk or it was my kids. And the skunk wasn't going to change, right? You can't, you can't teach a skunk not to spray. It's in their nature. I can't change the skunk's DNA and transform it into a cute little kitten, right? It, it had the nature of a skunk, and it would always be a skunk, which meant that it was going to destroy everything <laughs> with its spray. And so the skunk had to go. And, you know, recently we had some friends who had a skunk actually die underneath um, their home, and it ended up releasing all of its spray, and it got into their ventilation system, and the whole inside of their house just smelled like skunk. And they were telling us about this, and a couple weeks later we saw them, they came to our house, and literally I could smell the skunk on them. (laughs) And it just confirmed for me that I did the right thing that day. And... I think it's easy for people to get more offended at me than at the skunk because we forget, like, how offensive a skunk is, right? But if I were holding a skunk right now, like, in the spray position, I guarantee everyone in this room would be like, just kill it, kill it now, right? (laughs) And I think in some ways this is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, those who are not believers uh, often have great difficulty understanding the meaning and the purpose of the cross. It seems irrational, offensive even. Why would an innocent person have to die? It doesn't make sense. And honestly, we can't blame them because in 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, perhaps your, your response to the cross isn't really any better. You just have the opposite problem. You know, the cross does really nothing to stir you, good or bad. You've grown so accustomed to, to seeing this thing that it loses meaning. It loses power in your life. It doesn't move you as it once did. How, how do we recapture the wonder, the beauty, the glory, and even the offense of the cross? And I think the only remedy for this is to go back to the foot of the cross, to remember this story, to read and reread it, to meditate upon it, and to allow it to speak into our heart and our soul. 
because the cross is absolutely central to the gospel and to our salvation. And we know that it's important to God because we see how God's word actually handles these historical accounts of the cross. Philip Yancey writes in The Jesus I Never Knew, The biblical record slows down rather than speeds up when it gets to Holy Week, that is Passion Week, this week. The Gospels devote nearly a third of their length to the climactic last week of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saw the death as the central mystery of Jesus. What, What a strange religion Christianity is, if you think about it. I mean, in what other religion is a founder's death at the very center of its faith? But make no mistake, God is very deliberate when we come to this part of his story because he doesn't want us to miss the incredible importance of this singular event. It's like when I'm talking to my children and I slow down and I speak very clearly because I don't want them to miss or misunderstand what I'm about to say. So I'm going to try something a little different uh, for today's scripture reading. Uh, I'm going to read this passage a little slower than than I usually do and and play some background music. And this is not to create an artificial emotional response, but sometimes I actually do this in my own personal reading of the Bible because I find it helps uh, at times make very familiar passages come alive in new ways. And so if you're familiar with the uh, crucifixion narrative, I actually encourage you to just listen along with your eyes closed and And just imagine yourself there. It's Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 49. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, 
This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, called, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Amen. Let's pray together. God, your word has power because your word is true. It is living, it is active, it is sharper than any double-edged sword. Now take this story, Lord, that it may be so familiar to so many of us. Make it come alive again. Let it fall afresh on our souls, Lord. Open our minds, humble our hearts, awaken our spirits, Lord, to receive your word today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, in 2004, uh, Mel Gibson released a film that he co-wrote and directed called The Passion of the Christ. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It depicted the final 12 hours of Jesus' life in gruesome detail. And although it became the highest grossing R-rated movie in history, both Gibson and the film came under a lot of criticism because of what many people perceived as gratuitous violence. It's just too gory, too violent. And some would say that this movie was the start of Gibson actually getting blackballed in Hollywood for over a decade. And one of the loudest criticisms of the film was that it was anti-Semitic. It was prejudiced against Jews in that it painted the Jewish leaders in this movie and by association Jews today as the ones to blame for Jesus' death. But if you've watched the film, if you've read your Bible, you'd know that it's impossible to pin the death of Jesus solely on the Jews. Because Jesus states who was responsible for taking his life. It's Jesus. In John chapter 10, he says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
The story of the cross is not a Shakespearean tragedy. It's not about a great moral teacher who ran into a buzzsaw in the Roman government or a populist of the people who fell victim to a Jewish power struggle. When God executed his perfect son on the cross, he was executing his perfect plan. So we know that Jesus chose to die. But why? Why did he have to die? And what does his death mean for me and for you living here and now? So let's first examine why Jesus had to die and why this death was and is so necessary to our faith. You know, the cross was necessary because our sin brought death and it brought separation from God. In other words, Jesus had to die to redeem us from our sin and to secure our eternal union with him. And to really understand this, you have to go all the way back to Genesis. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, when God first created Adam and Eve, mankind enjoyed a perfect love relationship with him. Nothing was lacking. But that union was broken by their sin. And they were banished from the garden and no longer could have fellowship with God. And Adam and Eve, you know, they weren't in trouble because they ate a piece of fruit. It was in eating the forbidden fruit, they were demonstrating that they they didn't believe that God actually loved them. They believed God was holding out on them. In eating the fruit, they were rejecting his love. They were rejecting his promise, rejecting his provision. In eating the fruit, they rebelled and sinned against the holy God. And as descendants of Adam and Eve, we, we share in that same sinful and rebellious nature. You know, uh, my second son, Timothy, he's uh, 11 today, and I think about a year or two ago, um, I sat him down, and actually we were in the car, and, and uh, we had the, the conversation about, you know, the birds and the bees. And thankfully, it went very quick. And <laughs> he only had one question, because we, we, you know, afterwards, and we got into the topic of sin somehow. And... <clears throat> I was explaining to him how, you know, he sins. We all sin because we have a sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And he, he just couldn't wrap his mind around that. He's like, well, why do I get his sin? And he started to get kind of indignant. Like, how come he gets to be me, like represent me? Like, why, why do I have to take his sin? And so he kind of resolved himself. He's like, you know what, tomorrow I'm not going to sin. I'm going to go the whole day without sinning just to prove that I'm better than Adam. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, Okay. Go for it. And so the next morning he wakes up he, to fulfill this vow. Within 10 minutes he gets, Selah does something, I don't even remember what. She, 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 she does something that annoys him. He gets really upset. He loses his temper and he sins. And he starts to get even more angry because he realized that he couldn't even make it past 10 minutes and he already sinned. <laughs> and... Um, it was funny because I, was, I wasn't even going to share this, but on the way here, driving in the car, I said, hey, Tim, you know, you okay if I share this story? And he was like, yeah, I guess. But just tell him it was righteous anger. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? So you didn't sin the rest of that day either. It was just that one time, huh? And then, uh, and then my daughter, Selah, looks at him and she goes, it wasn't my fault. And echoes of Eden, right? And then Timothy goes, okay, you can share it if you give me $5. <laughs> My children have truly a sinful nature. Right? But the truth is, we all, we all share in that same sinful nature. Any of us can just 
get indignant and say, that's unfair. You know, if I had been in the garden that day, we wouldn't be in this mess. But the fact is that we all sin so freely ourselves every single day. Pride, selfishness, anger, greed, gossip, dishonesty, lust. This all proves that we, we wouldn't have done any better. It proves that we share in that same sin nature. It proves that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We've all inherited that same sin nature, which is why you don't have to teach a child, even a young boy like Grayson, right, to say me or mine or no. Through sin, we've also inherited the ultimate consequence of sin, death, eternal separation from God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. But God would not let sin have the final word. Immediately after the fall, we see God working to restore that relationship that's been broken by mankind. And following the fall in Genesis, we come to the book of Exodus, where we see the people of God, the Israelites, they're being oppressed by the Egyptians. And God calls Moses to lead his people into their deliverance. And deliverance was come in the form of ten plagues. And the last of which is called the Passover in Exodus 12. It's still being celebrated by the Jews today. The Passover required that a male lamb, without blemish, be sacrificed and eaten. And the blood of that unblemished lamb was to be spread on the doorposts of the home as a sign. Exodus 12 says this, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. The the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This was God's only provision by which the firstborn son of every household was to be spared from the angel of death. And it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile or an Egyptian. This was the only provision. And after Exodus, we arrive at Leviticus. And this is a book full of meticulous laws and rituals. And the book is a bit strange, right? And it's often misunderstood. But it's, imp- it's an important part of Scripture because it provides detailed instructions on, on how a sinful people can enter back into a re-enter into a fellowship with a holy God. You know, there's a, there's a series of videos produced by um, this group called The Bible Project, and they summarize the big ideas of, a, of all the books of the Bible, I think, and even you know, some, uh, some different uh, concepts of theology. And you can find them on your Right Now Media subscription uh, or on YouTube. It's uh, The Bible Project. And I want to show you a portion of one that they did for Leviticus because I think it takes what can be a very confusing book, and they do a great job of explaining the dilemma of sin and the holiness of God. And 15 centuries before Christ, it foreshadows how he would ultimately, God would ultimately go about restoring his union with a sinful people. So let's, let's play that. Now remember the story of the Bible began with humans in God. So immediately after the fall, God begins to unveil his plan for our redemption. And we see this in the very first books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, and now Leviticus. 
And I appreciate how this video explains the holiness of God because growing up, I, I always thought of God as this Superman-like figure, and I thought of sin as like his kryptonite. Right? In my mind, he was all-powerful, except when it came to sin. He, he just couldn't be around sin. It would destroy him. And I, I realized I had it all wrong. It's not that God cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Rather, it's sin that cannot dwell in the presence of God. Anything sinful would be consumed in an instant, just as we saw. So sin is not God's problem as much as it is our problem. And as we continue into the Old Testament, we learn that the only way that our union with a perfect God can be restored is if we find redemption from our sin. And God makes it clear early on that the only way we can find redemption from our sin is if something outside of our sinful selves, a pure and unblemished substitute, takes our place of judgment on our behalf. And this substitute would have to offer up its life in the form of a blood sacrifice. And the blood was a sign that it was, going to, it was giving up its life to lift the curse of sin and death. But all of these practices and rituals found in the Old Testament, I think they're kind of like movie trailers. Movie trailers for like a blockbuster film. The trailer doesn't tell us the whole story, but it gives us snippets, and it creates anticipation for the real thing, for something bigger, something better that is to come. Hebrews 10 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So while the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was important in helping us to see and recognize our sin problem and God's holiness, and while it highlighted our need for a mediator and a perfect sacrifice, it remained an imperfect and only a temporary solution to our sin problem which brings us back to why we need the cross. The cross was necessary because God's love brings salvation through his perfect sacrifice for us. In other words, Jesus came to the earth to live the life that we could not live, and he died the death that we should have died for our redemption. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And what Paul is saying is that in the same way that Adam, as one singular man, represented mankind and we inherited his sin, God has given us his son, the one singular God-man, in Jesus, to represent those who receive him by faith so that we might inherit his holiness. And Christ did this by taking our sin upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians call substitutionary atonement. And to be honest, there, there are some people, even within the church, they have, they have a difficult time with this idea. This idea of Jesus having to take our place and God the Father pouring out all his wrath and judgment upon his son. Because 
it, it doesn't seem fair, right? The guilty party goes unpunished and almost seems like a form of cosmic child abuse, right? But to dismiss this is to dismiss the fact that Jesus submitted his life by his own volition. It was his choice. And to see it as nothing more than child abuse is to dismiss the incredible pain that God the Father experienced in seeing his own son suffer. I mean, who among us as parents does not understand a glimpse of that pain? And to dismiss substitutionary atonement is to dismiss the absolute need for a perfect sacrifice. And only a perfect sacrifice could perfectly satisfy the law. Therefore, only God himself could be the substitute. And this is why when we move into the Gospels of the New Testament and Jesus first begins his earthly ministry, John the Baptist sees him from a distance and he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist is saying as as clear as possible that Jesus is the pure and sacrificial lamb, but not just any lamb. He's God's lamb. The lamb that God is providing to the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of not just the prophets, he's the fulfillment of the law as well. So when we believe and accept the gift that God offers us through his son to die in our place for our sins, we are restored back into relationship with God now and forever. That's the gospel. So when we come to the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23, I think this Old Testament background, it helps us understand what's happening on the cross and and why, but it's still kind of perplexing, isn't it? I mean, put yourself in the crowd. A man who was only a week earlier was sitting on a donkey being adored with praises is now being mocked on a cross. A man who was constantly surrounded by crowds of people, healing countless men, women, and children, now hung alone. Even his closest friends were nowhere to be found. A man who spoke profound truths with great power and authority, now he's he's just struggling to breathe. And the disciples had such high hopes that this man with power and charisma was going to usher in a new kingdom. This man was going to lead them to a better and more prosperous life, free from the oppression of Roman rule, free from the legalism of the Jewish leaders. And after three plus years of following him and watching him, they thought, maybe he's the son of God. But now he's hanging naked on a cross. How could this be God? Now, I find it interesting that to this day, Muslims accept Jesus as a great prophet, but they reject Jesus as the Son of God, and they reject that he died on the cross because they cannot fathom how or why anyone would subject themselves to that kind of shame. Certainly not a great prophet, and most certainly not the Son of God. But herein lies the irony. When we come to the cross, I'm convinced we see the Son of God in his finest hour. More than the powerful miracles, more than the profound teaching, we see him for who he really is. And so it's awesome. You know, uh, my wife Kim dislikes it when I go to the grocery store and I try to buy fruit (laughs) because I always pick the wrong ones. And I'm never quite sure if you're supposed to smell it, squeeze it, massage it, talk to it, knock on it, I don't know. 
I always get one that looks good on the outside, and you open it up, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's horrible. And um, there's a saying that you don't know what type of fruit you have until you squeeze it, and you see what kind of juice it produces. And I think that's true for humans as well. You know, we're, we're really good at putting up an image when things are going well. But your true self comes out when you're under stress, when you're under duress, when your kids are driving you crazy and you lose it, when that jerk cuts you off the road on the way to church. Didn't happen to me today. When you're trying to get ahead at work, and so you play office politics. When you're losing in the heat of competition, when you're playing a game or a sport, you can't hide your true self in those moments. But beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, which actually means oil press, and all the way to the Mount of Calvary, we see what is inside Jesus as he's being squeezed, he's being pressed in from every side. And everything that is on the inside begins to come out. Pouring out for the whole world to see. What is it that we see? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Why would you carry around the death of Jesus? Listen to what Paul is saying. He says, because it is only in the death of Jesus that his life is truly revealed. And at the foot of the cross, we see Jesus for who he really is. Notice at the start of this passage, while en route to his death, what does he do? He sees the women mourning, mourning for him, and he redirects their grief. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. While hanging on the cross and being mocked mercilessly, Jesus asked God the Father to do for his enemies what they refused to do for him. Show mercy. Father, forgive them. Even at the brink of death, unable to breathe from the asphyxiation of the cross, he turns to the repentant thief next to him. He pushes up off his nail-pierced feet just to gather enough air in his lungs so he could offer this man his comfort and his promise today. He'll be with me. Paradise. Who, who does that? Who has the power to love in this way? Under this kind of duress, but God himself. In the midst of intense pain and suffering, in the midst of the mocking and the insults, we don't see anger, we don't see judgment or revenge, we don't see hatred or self-concern or even fear. We see love. We see mercy. We see patience and self-control. We see goodness and glory. We see God. Jesus' teachings were remarkable, but what was most remarkable was how consistently he lived in line with his own teachings, even to his dying breath. You can mock Christians as hypocrites. You cannot mock Christ. He loved as he called the people to love. He forgave as he taught his disciples to forgive. He served as he commanded us to serve. 
He lived a perfectly sinless life. And Luke makes this very clear in the way that he carefully records the reaction of everyone who encounters Jesus as he approached his death. Pilate, who investigates him for trial, four times declares that Jesus is innocent. One thief on the cross declares to the other, this man's done nothing wrong. The Roman centurion who witnessed the way Jesus dies confesses, certainly this man was innocent. Luke tells us that even the crowds dispersing upon seeing him breathe his last, they beat their breasts. They recognize that a sinless man has just died. No other teacher has lived the life he lives. No other religious founder has even made the claims that he has made. There's this quote, an unknown author, stuck with me over the years. It says, Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. And only because Jesus lived a perfect life can he offer up himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is why he died. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He will return as he said he will return. But what does this mean for me today as a follower of Jesus? How is this relevant to me now? You know, the cross has profound meaning for the believer because it means that he has taken our sin nature and we we have taken on his divine nature when we receive him by faith. It means that your identity is not dependent upon the way the world defines you. It's not based upon the way you look, the grades you make, the degrees you've earned, the money you save, the things you have, the job you hold, the spouse you marry, the children you raise. Your identity is defined by God and is secured in the identity of his son. This means that the one who knows you better than anyone in the universe all of your faults, all of your failures, he looks down on you and he says, you are my beloved child. I'm so pleased with you. You're mine. I'll always love you. This means that because Christ participated in our death, we can now participate in his life. His victory is your victory. His righteousness is your righteousness. His inheritance is your inheritance. In Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Because the Son of God became a man, I can now become a Son of God. Because he was forsaken, I can now be forgiven. Because he died for me, I can now live for him. Now I want to close today's message by examining Jesus' last conversation on the cross because I think this exchange in particular captures the essence of the gospel so well. Here are three men. They're all facing the same predicament. They're all condemned. 
They're all on the brink of death. Yet, they couldn't be any more different. The first thief, following the lead of the crowd, he mocks Jesus, even in the midst of his own pain. He says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other thief rebukes him as he knows they're both getting their just due. And it's actually quite amazing. that On that dark day, a thief on the cross, a thief is the only one who truly recognizes Christ for who he is. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man had nothing, nothing to offer Jesus. His hands and his feet were literally bound to a wooden cross. He was on the verge of death. There was not a single thing he could do for God before his life would come to an end. All he could offer was the confession of his mouth from the depths of his heart. And it's clear from Jesus' response, that's all that was needed. Today, you will be with me in paradise. I love what Jesus says here because in this brief exchange, what we see is that God's response to our confession is immediate. It's today. God's response to our confession is himself. You will be with me. And he closes with these words, in paradise. You know, the root word for paradise here describes a beautiful garden, much like the Garden of Eden. And I don't think this is an accident. Through this unnamed nobody, a thief on the cross, God is declaring to the world that a fellowship that was broken in the garden is about to be restored again. His son has done all the work in bringing you back to him. It comes freely, but it did not come cheap. Now all that is required is a confession of the heart. Let's bow in prayer. When Jesus was on the road to Calvary, he told the women who were mourning to not weep for him, but to weep for themselves and for their children. Because there's coming a day when God's invitation for salvation will no longer be available. And those will be dark days. I think there are some people in this room who have never confessed in your heart your desperate need for Jesus. You're struggling in your sin. You're struggling in your sorrow. But right here, right now, you sense the call of Christ upon your life. For you, I want to say, today is the day of your salvation. And I want to give you an opportunity to make that confession just like the thief on the cross did, just simply by raising your hands in the quietness of this room. His invitation is himself. His desire is to be in relationship with you. It has been broken by sin.
if you want to receive his invitation, just raise your hand. We'll be praying for you. I think one of the dangers of growing up in the church is that we can almost become bored by the gospel story. It's easy to read the crucifixion account and yet personally remove ourselves from the entire story. But God is calling all of us who call our, calls ourselves followers of Jesus to just follow Jesus. To now pick up your cross to follow him. He's asking you to deny yourself, to surrender all that is good so you might discover what is best. Life with Him. Let's just take a moment, continue in prayer. Let's reflect upon the glory and the beauty of the cross. The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org.